0: promise, Uh, but I want to just pray today, you know, recently we've had just some really challenging situations, you know, we've had beautiful people in our church family slip into eternity, for them it's gain, for us it's a loss, and uh, I know Dale is here today, we want to just express our condolences as a church family at the loss of your mom on Friday, and so we're going to pray for their family, and then I'm aware of three other families in our church where people are in palliative care. And so we know that their days are numbered as well. So my heart goes out to these families that are walking through a time of grief. We think of the Fowler family here who've had double tragedy. And so I'm going to just keep praying. And maybe you're here today. That's not your situation, but you're in need of God's help today. Maybe you need God's wisdom. Maybe you need God's direction. You need provision in some way. Maybe you're having challenges and relational issues. I don't know what your need is, but God does. Listen to what the Bible says. Casting all our cares on him because he cares for us. And we're going to do that right now. So if you have a care, I want to just have you do something symbolic. Would you just lift your hands and say, Lord, I'm lifting my cares to you. I'm going to submit them to you today. As a matter of fact, as as of this moment, I'm going to release my anxiety. I'm going to release my anxious thoughts about these things that I'm carrying I'm committing them into your beautiful hands. I know that you're a sovereign God. I know that you're a good and loving Father. And I pray today that these needs that are represented by these uplifted hands, Father, that you will take into your deep consideration, that you will be ministering life, encouragement, wisdom, direction, provision, protection, whatever that need might be today. Lord, as we bring these to you, it might be health, it might be healing, it might be comfort. Father, whatever it is, we lift them to you right now, and we pray as we leave this place, we will not be weighted down any longer by these deep cares, Lord, because we know right now that you are the burden bearer, and you're caring and carrying our concerns, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Amen, you may be seated. How many realize that one of the great expressions of mercy towards us is to address the issues in our own soul. How many notes of mercy? God's not going to leave things unattended in our lives. He's going to address those things. And you know, we were chatting yesterday, and uh, we were talking about Cain and Abel. And right off from the very beginning, we see how interested God is in the life of someone who at that point made a very poor decision. He made an offering before God, and it reads this way in Genesis. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? What happened was God did not receive his offering. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why is there so much you know, gloom? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So he was upset, upset maybe with God. He was jealous. We were going to find out he was envious of his brother And God does something very profound right in the midst of this issue because, you know, scholars could debate over what was the real issue, but I think it was something internal. God saw the motivation of his heart, whatever was going on there. God knew there was an intrinsic internal problem he was trying to address. Verse 7 says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It desires to dominate you, master you, but you must master it or rule over it. So God was now telling Cain, listen, I'm, I'm for you. I'm not opposed to you. I want to address this issue in your life. I don't want whatever this thing is inside of you to dominate your life and to actually create severe consequences in your life. But you know what happened? Cain did not respond to God's warning. And unfortunately, rose up and killed his brother, and it set the pattern for his entire life. How many know that changed the whole trajectory of his life? I believe it's important when God speaks warnings into our life. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us that he does that, and he's trying to help us make good decisions in our lives. I believe God's always trying to get our attention, especially when we're deviating from his purposes. And the Scriptures you know, show us, not only does God instruct us, not only does God encourage us, not only does God comfort us, but we also read God will warn us. And you know, here in Jeremiah chapter 6, we find that God's calling for a decision that would be move the people in a right direction. He's warning them of a danger that's about to befall them because they are not responding in the right way. And so we read that, and we're going to look at this chapter that Jeremiah has a vision of what is about to occur. Tremper Longman says, Jeremiah employs an event vision to describe the future judgment of God on his people. An event vision describes a future occurrence as if it were a present event. So the actual, the, 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 the grammatical structure of the Hebrew language here is simply that it's as if it's occurring right in the moment and yet it's still forthcoming. There's, a, there's an opportunity for people to change the course of things, but there needs to be an action on the part of the people, and we're going to see that. Now, there are three things that we need to understand from God's warnings here that will help you and I make really wise decisions in the days ahead, and I want to look at those three things. And the first one is the severity of ignoring the warning. How many know that ignoring warnings could cause a lot of grief? You know, a lot of times we, we read labels, warning, you know. You see something, don't drink this stuff. If you do, it could kill you. You know, if you ignore that kind of a warning, that's to your own hazard, right? You know, I, I was thinking about it. You know, if somebody was about ready to fall off a thousand-foot cliff and you and I were standing nearby, how many would probably scream out to that person a warning when you could see that they were about ready to step off into a thousand foot drop. How many think you'd probably scream out a warning? Anybody here might do that? Yeah, you probably would, because that would just be an intrinsic, innate thing inside of us to save a person from destroying themselves. I believe God is interested in doing that for our sake. So uh, here we read here in Jeremiah chapter six. It says, "Flee for safety, people of Benjamin! Flee from Jerusalem!" sound the trumpet in Tekoa raise the signal over Beth Hacharim, which is really the house of the vineyards for destruction looms out of the north even terrible destructions so here we were seeing earlier in the book in chapter 4 verses 5 to 6 he was telling the people flee to Jerusalem and hide behind the fortified walls but you know what's happened since then people have not responded to God's warnings they've not turned their backs on their sin. And so God is saying, listen, it's even gotten worse now. What I'm about to do, even Jerusalem won't be able to stand against this assault. As a matter of fact, he's telling them, run for the hills. You know, get out of Dodge, folks, because you're in trouble right now. And how many know that if the people are listening to the voice of God, they're going to do that very thing. They're getting out of Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus actually warned his disciples there was a day coming when Jerusalem would be destroyed in you know, in the days ahead, and the Christians actually were warned and left Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed it, so they were spared. So I think it's important we heed or listen to or respond and obey to what God is calling us to do. It says here uh, by uh, R.K. Harrison, he says there's a flight was to be to the Judean wilderness, and that's their only hope left for personal survival. If you've ever been south of Jerusalem, you know how desolate it is. This is not an exciting spot to be fleeing to. The mention of Tekoa is a play on the words blow in Tekoa. You know, it's, Hebrew does this sometimes. So he's, he's basically uh, basically using the same letters. It's kind of a play on words. The suggestion is that the people will be safer in this hilly area 12 miles south of Jerusalem on the borders of the desert rather than the fortified capital. Now, Tekoa's in the north, but he's telling them, flee to the south. Get out of Dodge. Get out of that direction because that's where the enemy's coming from, the north. He says, I will destroy daughter Zion, so beautiful and delicate. Zion's another name for Jerusalem, if you don't know. He goes on to say in verse 3, shepherds with their flocks will come against her. They will pitch their tents around her, each tending his own portion. Now, You know, it almost sounds like a pastoral scene where a shepherd's coming along with the sheep and goats. That's not what's being described here. The word shepherd also stands for leaders, and these were military leaders. God was raising up an army to come against his own people and to discipline them. We're going to see the significance of that in a few minutes. He goes on to say here that uh, basically Jerusalem will be no match for this army. She's delicate, she's beautiful, but that's not going to save her. This is going to be a very brutal situation. Uh, He says, prepare for battle against her. Now, it almost sounds like God is talking to the people that are rising up against his own people. Prepare for battle against Jerusalem. Arise, let us attack at noon. It's almost like he's sitting in the enemy camp giving instructions. But alas, the daylight is fading and the shadows of evening grow long. So arise, let us attack at night and destroy her fortresses. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees, build siege ramps against Jerusalem. The city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. God's saying there's a sense of urgency here. Now, how many know that most ancient peoples never fought in the evening? It was not a wise thing. You couldn't see what you're doing. You know, you're in total darkness. They usually fought during the day. Why did he give them this instruction? There's a sense that when they arrived on the scene, God was saying, there's an urgency in this matter. I want this done immediately. You get a feel for that as you're reading the story here because God had been warning them for so long and there was just an indifference and a neglect to what God had been saying. So God says, now I've made up my mind. This is what's going to happen. There's that sense there that's happening. Now, the reason behind the activity is described here because... The city is filled with oppression. You see, we have to have an understanding. You know, a lot of times we think, well, I'm doing something and it's wrong, but God's not really dealing with it. That's actually the mercy of God giving us an opportunity to change our mind. God is not willing that anybody should perish. God is long-suffering with us. But if we persist in our rebellion, God will eventually address it. And he will address it severely, especially if we've had warning after warning after warning. And here we see, as Walter Brueggemann writes, the army is actually not the real threat, but is only the agent of Yahweh or God who is the real threat. Now, this, to me, uh, speaks so powerfully of what's really going on. You know, a lot of times what we are dealing with is the symptoms. And I'm going to apply it to our current context. You know, a lot of times we're hung up on things like pandemics or Governments who are re- reducing freedoms, and we get all bent out of shape on that stuff that 's where our minds are at. Can I just say that that 's a symptom that 's actually not the real issue that 's what we think is the real issue. The real issue is God is the one behind the scenes. How many know God can send, allow a pandemic to come? He can take a pandemic out? you know He can rise up a leader, he can take down a leader. You know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to argue that God is sovereign over all the nations of the earth. He's the one that raises people up and takes them down. And so the real issue is not out there. The real issue is, are we walking in the right way before God? Because God's defining what's going to happen in our future. That's what we need to understand. We're getting hung up on symptoms and not the root causes. And the root causes is, look at our culture today, how broken it is. How far away we've gotten from God. The only answer to some of these issues is that people would fall on their knees and cry out to God for mercy. And God would hear our cry and alleviate our lands from some of these terrible things that are coming our way at this point. And we need to understand that. And that's exactly what was happening here. So the question is not so much what's What's uh, challenging the security? We think our security is being challenged from without. I'm arguing our security is being challenged from within. And I have to ask myself the personal question, am I walking humbly before God? Am I serving him with all of my heart? Am I fulfilling God's will and purposes in my life? And that's the question you need to ask yourself before we start pointing the fingers at everybody else and what they're doing wrong. Because we have a tendency to do that, by the way. That's very innate to us as human beings. It's very good to say, you got a problem there, buddy. When we, don't, we need to take a hard look at ourselves and say, we have a problem. And it starts with us. And the real blessings in our lives is when you and I become a blessing to other people. When we start living for an eternal purpose. You know, I, I'm really convinced that God really doesn't want us to live the way we were living. I'm convinced of that. Because before we had all this freedom and prosperity, we just squandered it. We're getting really quiet now. You see, we needed to be going about making disciples. We needed to be going about expending our lives for the kingdom of God. But a lot of times we were distracted with all the wonderful things that this life had to offer. And yet, I think as you move through the journey of life, you start realizing how fleeting life is, how short the duration life really is. You and I need to be about the Father's business. We only have so much of an opportunity. We need to embrace the moments that we're in and take advantage of those situations. Here we read a little bit more of the moral pollution that was happening in the lives of the people who named themselves after God. It says in verse 7, As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. This is speaking of Jerusalem. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. God speaking. Take warning, Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so no one can live in it. These are are very powerful expressions. What is God saying? What can you expect from a sick society but evil? How many thought that's true? You know, you can't expect you know spiritual vitality when people are violating God's laws. The society is gonna suffer as a result of that. That was certainly the case of Judah and Jerusalem was at the heart of it as the capital. You know, we think of it as, well, that's just Jerusalem at that hour in history. And I would argue back that no, that's the nations of the world. And when nations are degenerating and perpetuating evil, what is happening is the disintegration of society. And you and I are walking around You know, when you have some sort of moral discernment, you can see it. You're looking around. It's it's very evident that our society is disintegrating. How many realize that? You can actually see what's happening in people's lives. You can see the, the brokenness of families. You can see the deteriorating of this culture. And... Uh, we discover that this happens throughout history. This is not the first time, folks. This has happened over and over and over again. I could argue that every nation and empire that ever rose, they go through this same experience. This is very typical of human behavior. And Moses actually warned the people when they went into the land. He says, just by the way, when God starts really blessing you, don't forget the blesser. And don't focus in on the blessing, because when you do that, you're going to forget God. And when you forget God, everything starts falling apart. And I've, I've witnessed that in all the years of my ministry, how many people forget God and their lives begin to deteriorate. You see it all the time. So as uh, I was perusing through a book on ethics this week, I have a number of them, and I was trying to find something I want to share with you. But I, I found this quote, but I, I don't quite have it because I couldn't re- recapture it. You know, you're going through reading for preparation, you read a lot of stuff, and then I went, where, where, where was that? I just couldn't quite find it. But it went something like this. While many people today are trying to change the world, very few are trying to change themselves. And I'm going to argue that that's the big problem we're having today. You see, we're, we're motivating people to change the world, and we're busy, you know, criticizing all kinds of stuff out there, but what very fewer people are doing is really working on changing themselves. You say, why is that so important? Because when you and I change, something happens inside of us. We become an influencer for good to the people around us. And when that continues to happen, that's where you get real social change. And that's important. As a matter of fact, in this text in Jeremiah's day, God was calling the people to repent. You know, I used to think the word repentance was a negative term when I was a younger Christian. I don't see it that way anymore. I think it's a positive term. You see, repentance means to change your mind. It means to come into agreement with God. And you know, some t- but when we think of repentance, you know, we're thinking of, oh yeah, people out there gotta repent. No, I think people in here got to repent. I think I need to repent. I think I need to let God work on me every single day and keep shaping my thinking and my mind so I begin to see things the way he does. That's a form of repentance. It should be a continuous thing happening in our life. And I think as we repent, then we begin to trust God in a way we hadn't trusted him before. As a matter of fact, not only did uh, the message of repentance be preached throughout the scriptures, Jesus himself came. What did he do? It says he came bringing the kingdom of God, preaching repentance. Isn't that interesting? That was the message of Jesus. That was the message of John the Baptist. That was the message of the apostles. We've lost that message somehow today. And that's the message of the gospel. Unless you and I repent you know, and turn from our wicked ways, we can't really ex- experience the grace that God wants to pour into our lives. Luke says it this way. There were some people present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, I could just see a zealot listening to this conversation and saying to these people, well, that's the reason why we got to kill the Romans and kick them out of our country. We're being oppressed, right? Now, Jesus, some, some religious people thought this way. Well, the reason why that happened is those guys must have really done something terrible and God allowed you know, this to happen to their lives. They were worse sinners, and that's why they went through this terrible time. That was their interpretation of the event. How many want to hear Jesus' interpretation of the event? That's what I'm interested in. This is what Jesus said. Oh, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Oh, that's an interesting statement. He's going, no, no, stop doing that. That's what we tend to do. We're very comparative. We're always comparing things. Jesus goes, No, no. He says, Unless you repent, you too will all perish. What's Jesus saying? We're all all part of the problem. And the solution to the problem is you and I collectively need to repent, but we also need to repent individually. And That's so important. And the only way judgment is going to be stayed is if you and I change our mind, come in agreement with God. But let me move on to the second thing we need to understand regarding God's warnings. Number two, what's the response God is looking for? What is God requiring of us? Well, I think you're seeing it. I'm talking about repentance, right? He desires us to respond in obedience to his warnings. These are designed to protect us and allow us to flourish. Yet often people, when they are warned, they're just indifferent. they just like, no big thing. I'll do my own thing, you know, or else we mock and scoff. You know, it's so fascinating to me. Back in uh, 1980, I was in Bible college. Patty was in Bible college, and our in-laws, her sister and brother-in-law, flew in from Alaska. We were living in Seattle going to school. And uh, first thing off the plane, is that volcano going to explode? Mount St. Helens, right? And so there was a lot of coverage about Mount St. Helens. You know, there was a lot of uh, concern about it becoming active. And they were monitoring it. And the scientists were seeing all the signs of a volcanic eruption. Now, it's interesting. They were nervous because Mount St. Helens is actually relatively close to Seattle. And I said, don't, don't, don't worry about it. We'll be okay. And you know what? Seattle was Okay. The only problem was they said to us, well, we want to go visit Joe's family, that's my brother-in-law, in Spokane. Spokane got dumped with a lot of ash. So we took him and we got, we got ashed by Mount St. Helens. That was my experience. Why am I saying all of this? Because all along there were people living on the mountain." and the and the geologists and the seismologists and all those people were telling them get off the mountain it's getting worse this thing is going to erupt at any time get off the mountain one old guy was reported as saying listen i've lived on this mountain all my life the mountain's been good to me it'll never hurt me he's been warned but that's the attitude that people had no big deal do you know what happened on may 18th 1980 mount st helen blew her lid was a volcanic eruption and 57 people died. And all of those deaths were needless because those people refused to listen to the warning. Now that's a very tangible example of what happens when people don't listen to warnings. That was a physical example. But listen, there are moral examples. We could go down and talk about how many people have not heeded God's warnings to us. Here in verse 9, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Let them glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as a vine. Pass your hand over the branches again like one gathering grapes. In other words, God says, I'm going to come in, and this judgment is going to be complete. You know, because usually when you had harvesters, they would miss some of the grapes. Then later, gleaners would come in and take up all the leftovers. God says, I am going to do a thorough job of dealing with this. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? The ears are closed so that they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. I think this has got to be one of the most tragic statements. I, how many recognize how painful it is to watch someone you love become unresponsive to warnings? You can see the danger they're in. You can see the, the direction they're going. You can see the bad decision they're making. And you're saying to themselves, listen, listen. This is not a healthy decision. Anybody ever tried to warn somebody and it's just like on deaf ears. They don't want to hear what you're saying to them and it's heart-rending because you know what's going to happen as a result. Jeremiah goes, but I am full of the wrath of the Lord and I cannot hold it in. Jeremiah is... You know, he knows that God's about to judge. He doesn't really want to preach the sermon. I was thinking about it this week. You know, it'd be so easy for me to say, you know, Lord, maybe we should move out of Jeremiah. You know, Isaiah's actually a different prophet, and we could get to chapter 40, and it says, comfort, comfort my people, you know? But here I am now, warning. And, you know, you like to move away from these kind of sermons, but I realize something. <clears throat> Warnings are just as important as, and as loving as trying to give encouraging sermons. I mean, could you imagine only hearing the sermons that tell you, you know, how good God is and look at all the good things God has done for you and never talk about the other side of the equation that if you and I ignore God's word and do our own thing, we're going to suffer. You need to hear the warnings. That's just as important. He goes on to say, it's almost like God and Jeremiah are having a conversation. Jeremiah goes, I don't want to preach the sermon. God goes, pour it out on the children in the street. On the young men gathered together, both husband and wife will be caught, it, caught in it, and the old and those weighted down with years. Their houses will be turned over to others together with their fields and their wives. And when I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord. Wow. Robert Davidson says, kind of explains the tension that Jeremiah is experiencing. I, I've, I can relate to this tension. He says, not only are they deaf to what God wants to say to them, but they openly laugh at what the prophet is saying. And there's nothing more soul-destroying than trying to tell people something you believe to be of central importance to their lives, only to be met with ridicule. How many have ever shared the gospel and people just write you off? It's difficult, you know. You're saying, hey, this is the most important thing. This is going to affect you for all of eternity. And they go, ah, oh, I'm not interested. <laughs> to preach is pointless, but, to not, but not to preach is tearing me apart, says Jeremiah. In other words, he says, I'm telling them, but no one's listening. But if I don't tell them, I'm just falling apart here. And then he says, I cannot keep this message of God's judgment, the wrath of God, bottled up inside of me. And then you have this response. Do not bottle it up, says the Lord in reply. Pour it out. Man, thank you very much. How many know Jeremiah was not going to win any offices? He's not going to win any popularity contests, right? There may be an implied rebuke in these words as if the Lord were saying to Jeremiah, what do you want to be, a successful preacher? Forget it. I'm not asking you to be successful. I'm asking you to be faithful. Amen? You know, it just depends on your definition. If your definition of success is having a lot of people listen to you, That's one definition. Here's another one. Definition of success, doing what God's telling you to do. To me, that's the real definition of success, and that means you have to be faithful and do what God's asking you to do. Uh, How many know people need to hear certain things, even if they don't want to? Because that's good for us, all of us. Specific sins that we're being exposed. He goes on to describe them. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophet and priests alike. All practiced deceit. Wow, you talk about one distorted culture. These people were God's covenant people worshiping in his temple. And God says the whole group of them are totally missing the point. They're basically saying it's okay to do anything you want to do. God's never going to address this stuff. And don't worry about God destroying Jerusalem. It'll never happen. We have the temple here. That's God's house. He'll never destroy his own house. And they lived in that false sense of security. How many know that when you study history at 586 God totally destroyed that temple? By the way, you thought the Jewish people would have gotten it by the time Jesus rolls around? How many know God destroyed the second temple too? By the Romans in 70 AD? Hey, listen, God's not interested in buildings made by human hands. God's more interested in the building of our hearts. That's where God is concerned in an internal situation. He says they dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No. They have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. So what is driving the decision of these people to behave in this way? These are religious people. Personal benefit. They're exploiting other people for personal gain. Now think about how irrational that is. You know, sometimes in life, we tend to want to protect ourselves, and sometimes we're taking advantage of other people to further our own end. I want you to think about how crazy that is. Because if you're gaining all kinds of earthly things, it's all temporary. One day you're going to stand before God. That's eternal. So we need to start rethinking the way we're living life. You know, We shouldn't be exploiting, oppressing, ripping people off. Those things should be going by the wayside. And then to further aggravate the problem, many of the people who supposedly should have been spokespeople for God were telling everybody, that's eh, okay to do that. And you know, that hasn't changed. We got people today saying to people, it's okay to do that. You know, and I'm going, hey, be careful what you're saying because you know, all of us want to be told everything's going to be okay. How many of you like hearing that? Hey, don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay. But sometimes that's a false sense of security. You know, we need to tell people, hey, this is what God requires. This is what God is saying. So we need to obey God. That's when you can start feeling more secure is when you're saying yes to God. Now, uh, uh, Walter uh, Bergemann says this, but when one does not listen to the word of God, the, destruct, uh, the result is destructive social policy. This community had lost every norm by which to evaluate and excess as rapacious, rapacious and exploitive greed. In other words, they had totally given up on the standards. You know, we're living in a culture today, there are no standards. Does anybody understand that? See, the Word of God is a standard. If we move away from this, how are we going to evaluate our lives? We have nothing to evaluate ourselves by. You think we 're going to evaluate each other correctly? I doubt it. So what is the right kind of a response? What should our response be? How should we be living? What path should we take and here 's the mercy of God in the midst of this warning of judgment here 's god 's beautiful appeal to the people, an offer of grace and mercy isn 't that 's the nature of god he can 't help himself. God does not want to judge people. I don't know if you get this. God does not want to do this. But he doesn't want people to destroy other people either. So this is what it says in verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads, look, ask for the ancient past, ask where the good way is, and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. God says there's a way that we can salvage this terrible situation. Here it is. I've given it to you. But notice the people's response. But you said, we will not walk in it. They're rejecting it. F.B. Huey says, they must go back to the fork in the road and decide which way to go. If they listened to God's instruction and took the ancient path, Mosaic law that required morality, holiness, obedience, and compassion, they would find rest. These words should not be taken as a polemic or an argument against progress or stubborn intransence, against change, but rather as a commitment to submit to God's ways. In other words, going back to the ancient way isn't like we're going to go back to tradition. No, no. We're going back to the way God always designed it. Do you realize that God always had a path for humanity? All the way back from Adam and Eve all the way to the future. God's path has not deviated. That's what he's talking about here. Four verbs in verse 16 describe how this good way is found. Stand, look, ask, and walk. It's the good way that God approves. It's the way that is best for our lives. So I just wrote down, when we come to that juncture in the road, when we finally realize that there's got to be something better than what's happening at present in our world, and possibly in our personal world, We need to ask God for directions. How many think when you're lost, maybe you should ask for directions? How many wives nudge your husband right now? That's what you needed to do, right? My wife will go, why don't you just stop and ask for directions? Right? Here in our text, God explains that the right path is the ancient path, right from the beginning, as I said. So, what does that path look like? Well, I think it's a hard attitude that reveres God. It desires to please God. And we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, am I walking in that path? It's a relational path. It's not a mechanistic, rigid, legalistic, religious path. That's not how we relate to God. You know, it's really tragic. I see two extremes. I see people totally ignoring the word of God and the ways of God and the, and the commands of God and, the, and the, really the, the moral identity of who God is. People ignore that. That's the group that I call the, the antinomianists. They're the people into license. Do what you want. Everything's okay with God. Then there's this other group on the other far side who are rigid. They're Pharisaical. They judge everything. They're condemning everything. Everybody's false. Everybody's wrong. I think that's a wrong path, too. Listen to what the scriptures say. Because the scriptures are actually trying to bring us to a person. That's what we need to get. Jesus said, I am the path, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here's, here's the really interesting statement. I know I've shared this before with you, but it's so strong in my spirit right now. It's just simply this. He's talking to the, this group over here now, the legalists. And he says, you guys are studying the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, what, them, the scriptures, you have eternal life. Wrong. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. See, if you don't get to Jesus from reading the word of God, you don't have eternal life. Eternal life is not just in the scriptures. The scriptures are to teach us about Christ. And when you come to Christ, that's where eternal life is. How many are understanding what I'm saying? I love the word of God. I study it diligently. But I'm saying to myself, you have to come to the person of the book. If you don't get there, it's not bringing you life, it's bringing you judgment and death. And you just become critical and harsh. That's, that's what happens. They're just, the scriptures are a signpost to bring you to a person. They're the direction. How many ever need directions? I need it every day. That's why I go to the scriptures. I want to make sure I see Jesus. I want to make sure I get to Christ. I want to make sure I become like him. Let me move on to the third thing we need to understand. It's the result of rejecting God's warning. How many already know this isn't going to go well? If you say no to God, Things are going to unravel in a hurry. And here were people that were saying no to God. And, you know, you you could argue with me and say, well, that wasn't Jeremiah's time, Pastor. That's a great message for Jeremiah's hour. Can I just say to you, it's always Jeremiah's hour. We're living in that all the time. We never get away from this. You know, we may live in a different time, in a different cultural condition, but we need to discover the application And the application of God's word works in every context, including our own. People have not really changed. How many say that's true? We're battling all the same issues. Even what Cain had, he was envious of his brother. Do we still have envy today? Yes, we do. Do we have lust today? Yes, we do. Do we have greed today? Yes, we do. Do we have selfish ambition today? Yes, we do. Do we have people exploiting other people and oppressing people? Yes, we do. Do we have hatred, prejudice, anger, How many just, what am I doing? I'm just listing sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is is in our world dominating our culture. How many go, pastor, we agree with you. Does anybody say that's not, I didn't didn't assess that right? No, we got sin dominating our culture. But more personally damaging, sin, sin is dominating many of our personal lives. There's the real culprit. The battle isn't just around us. The battle is within us. We're not just fighting out there. We're also fighting within our own souls. There's a battle going on. Ignoring warnings have consequences. Look at verse 17. I point a watchman over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you, That's a trumpet of warning. But you said, we're not going to walk in it. We're not going to listen to it. We're not going to respond to that. That's what they were doing. But you know what God says? Okay, I'm going to use you guys. You're going to be a teaching tool. How many know you can learn from other people's mistakes? As a matter of fact, here's my my one thing you should get out of the sermon. Don't make all the same mistakes. You know, don't don't, don't learn from all your bad mistakes. Start learning from other people's mistakes and don't make them. That's even smarter. Where's a good place to go? The Bible. The Bible has a whole bunch of people making mistakes. I'm going to avoid those things, right? Why would I want to do that? Look how dumb that was. Look what happened. We should learn. God says, I'm going to teach you something. He says, Hey, therefore, hear you nations, you who are witnesses. Observe what's going to happen to them. Pay attention to what I'm about to do. These are the people that say that they're serving me. Look what I'm doing because they're, they say they are, but they're really not. He says, hear, O oh, you earth. I'm bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they've not listened to my words. They've rejected my law. What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. What's he saying to them? He's saying, listen, you guys are going through the motions. You know, you're like Cain. You bring an offering, but I'm not accepting it, you know? As a matter of fact, Samuel and Saul is another classic story. You know, Samuel sends Saul out to destroy the Amalekites. What does he do? He brings back all these stuff God God told him, destroy it. And excuse me, Samuel says no. Saul says, "No, I've got a better plan. We're going to have a little offering to God. Samuel shows up on the scene. This is what his words are: "Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord?" What's the answer? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed or listen to or obey is better than the fatter of rams. God says, "Listen, I want your obedience." You know, that's why Jesus came. He says, I delight to do your will, O God. Sacrifice and offerings you do not desire. I delight to do your will. God is looking for us to have the right kind of sacrifice where we're giving ourselves totally to him. Verse 23, for rebellion is, is the sin of divination. Do you understand what this is really saying? It's basically, when you were, you know, divination was an ancient practice by ancient peoples to determine the mind of the gods to know what to do. And it was forbidden for the Israelites to do that because they were turning their back on God and looking to other things to give them guidance. What are we doing today? Are we turning to God for wisdom, understanding, discernment, and guidance? Or are we just kind of leaving it up to all this other stuff in the world. That's called rebellion and it leads to divination. And it's arrogant. It's an expression of idolatry because we're trusting in something other than God. How many know when you and I are turning our backs on God and doing our own thing, who are we really trusting in? Ourselves. That's why Proverbs says, don't lean to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Go to God. Goes on to say here, he describes what's about to occur. He says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to put obstacles before this people. Parents and children alike will stumble over them. Neighbors and friends will perish. This is what the Lord says. Look, an army's coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. God actually raised up the Babylonians to discipline his people. That's the only reason. If they've been walking in obedience, we may not ever had a Babylonian empire. How's that? That's a shocking statement, but that could be true. Getting quiet in here. See, we have this attitude that these these are inevitable things, that these nations will rise up and do this stuff. I'm going, no, it's not. God's sovereign in the world. God is doing things. He's he's determining what's about to happen and what's not about to happen. And some of it's conditioned on what we're doing down here as human beings. It's conditioned on you and I walking with God and doing what's right in his sight. Oh. We've become very passive. They're armed with bow and spear. They're cruel and show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They'll come like men in battle formation to attack you, daughter Zion. We have heard reports about them and our hands hang limp and anguish has gripped us like that of a woman in labor. These guys were really now in deep anguish because of the fear that they were experiencing. They were terrified by this report. They didn't want to hear this stuff. How many don't like bad news? Well, they were getting it in full, you know, and it, it, was, it was from Jeremiah who was speaking the word of the Lord. He says, do not go out to the field or walk in the roads for the enemy has a sword and, sword and there's terror on every side. Put on sackcloth, my people. Once again, here's God's, what what does it mean to put on sackcloth? It's a garment of mourning. It's an expression of grief. You know, people that did this, it's an expression of repentance. It's an expression of a change of mind. God's saying, listen, if you want to do something, he said, this is how you need to act. Put on sackcloth, my people. Roll in ashes, mourn with bitter wailing, as for an only son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. The chapter ends as God designates the role to Jeremiah. I call it of a silversmith in God's evaluative process. It's really fascinating. We have an analogy. I, I've never worked with metals. Curtis, you probably have, and I've seen it in India. I've actually watched them do this work. Mark, were you with us when we went to that jeweler's place, and they're mel- melting down gold and silver on the side of the street? It's just, wow, I mean, this is so real to me. So here he says, I've made you a tester of metals, and my people are the ore, that you may observe and test their ways. They are all hardened rebels going about to slander. They are bronze and iron. They all act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely to burn away the lead with fire, but the refining goes on in vain. The wicked are not purged out. They are rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a refining process. You know when you want to refine metal? You put it in a fire. And what happens is you have this dross or the slag that comes to the top and you skim it off. And God said, you know what happened here? I, I kept putting them in the fire and there was, I couldn't find anything of value. There was nothing of value. Matthew Henry relates it this way. God, by his prophets and by his providences, had used means to refine this people, but it was all in vain. God has no pleasure in the death and ruin of sinners. He did not reject them till he had used all proper means to reform them, nor abandoned them as dross till it appeared that they were reprobate silver. What's Matthew Henry telling us? God gave them every opportunity to respond to him. The only person ultimately we can blame for our lives is ourselves. We are the product of our choices. Now, I realize I can't control everything. You can't control everything. But you and I can control our response to what's happening to us. Will we trust God and walk in his ways, or will we rebel and do our own thing? That's the question. And so I want us to stand as we close the service this morning, because I want to just raise a thought here with you. You know, when you're preaching a sermon like this, you're saying, Okay, God, where are we going with this thing? And it just came so strong to me this week. That, it's, that there are some of you right now, you're at a crossroad. That's exactly, you're at a crossroads in your life. And God has been trying to speak to you, and he's been trying to warn you to break off something in your life. You know, sometimes it might be an unhealthy relationship. God's been warning you and warning you. He says, I want you to break that off. You know, maybe for some of you, he's calling you to address an addiction in your life, and he's telling you, I want you to deal with it. Maybe he's asking you to reallocate your priorities of time and resources differently. You're at this fork in the road. God's talking to you, and he's telling you, he's saying to you, listen, look, ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. That's when you'll find rest for your soul. Now, I don't know if you've ever had these moments in your life, but I've had them, where I've had the Spirit of God very distinctly warn me and challenge me. Maybe, you were, maybe you're dealing with a temptation right now. And you're right on the line. You're on the edge. You're actually standing at the edge of the cliff. And God is saying, one more step, and you're gone. And he's, you're at that place. You're at that, that fork in the road. You're at that crossroad. I was there as a young man. I felt like God just kind of brought me up. I, I remember I was, I was working. I was cooking in this restaurant. And God really, that night, I could still remember it. I was standing against this wall looking forward. And I felt God saying, you're at a crossroads. Right now, you're going to choose. If you choose this course that you're on right now, if you keep on this course, this is how you're going to end up. And if you choose this other way, I'm going to save you, and you're going to end up on a different road. I had a choice that night. You know what I did? I acted. I said, okay, God, I'm going to to take this warning, and I stepped this way. I never regretted that choice. I've had other moments where God was warning me, saying, okay, this is what I want from you. And at that moment, I'll tell you, God's, when, he, when he finally makes that real to you, you start to realize, I better act on this. Because if I don't act in the right way here, destruction's coming my way. And this is a serious moment. And maybe it's, this, this, this word could be just specifically for maybe, like in the last service, most people didn't respond, but there was about four or five people. They, it was the Spirit of God was speaking right into their situation. God was saying, this is your last chance. Some of you are going, you know what, though? I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. I've tried maybe to break this addiction or this pattern or this habit. I just can't seem to get free. And I feel like, okay, if this is the last warning, what do I do? Here's what I'm going to tell you. And I love this. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew's gospel? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, if you can't handle it, come to me. He's challenging you today, right now, to say, okay, Lord, I've maybe struggled with this addictive behavior. But I'm challenging you today. Say, Lord, I can't do it anymore. I'm coming to you. And Jesus is going to take you, and he's going to give you rest. He says, come and learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. I'm going to teach you the right way. And with every head bowed right now, it's going to give you an opportunity to respond. Spirit of God is speaking to hearts. This is a very decisive moment in your life. I think there are moments like this where, you know what, if you, if you just keep walking, you're going to walk into destruction. God's calling you right now. And that's you. The spirit of God is talking to you right now. Just with an uplifted hand, say, Pastor, that's me. God's speaking to me. My spirit. God's speaking to me. Just raise your hand real quick. Okay, quite a few people now are just saying, yep, that's me. God's speaking into my spirit right now. He's calling me right now. I'm telling you, just run to Jesus. Throw your arms around him and say, okay, Lord, I'm giving myself to you fully. I'm giving to my, myself to you fully. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to go, oh, my goodness. Here, here's the good news. As you made the decision today, as you keep walking with him, all of a sudden you're going to realize it's gotten easier. That's no longer the issue anymore. Then you're going to look back and go, why did that ever bait me? Why was that even a temptation? You're going to go further along and you're going to look back and go, oh God, thank you. That would have been so destructive. I would have lived with so much regret in my life. Thank you for sparing me at that moment. I thank you that I got to that moment and you set me free. You delivered me because I said yes to you at that moment in my life. I was at that crossroads, and I took the right road. I'm going to pray for you right now. Lord, I thank you. You're at the crossroads of every life. You bring us up to those points. You speak into our lives. You warn us, oh, God. And it's a challenging word, but Lord, I thank you that when we respond in obedience to you, when we come to you with our our broken hearts, our empty hearts, our weak hearts, our failing hearts, Lord, you strengthen us. You, you, You do a mighty work inside of us. You restore us. You renew us. You revive us. You refresh us, oh God. And Lord, you begin to do amazing work in our life. It's a transformative work. It's a great work of change. It moves us uh, in, in a new realm in our spiritual journey with you. It's a powerful thing that happens to us. And right now, I thank you, Lord, that right now you have just reached out and grabbed a hold of a bunch of people who are about ready to step off a cliff and drop a thousand feet to their own spiritual ruin. You've just grabbed them, Lord, and now you're carrying them away from that place of danger. And you're giving them life. You're going to pour hope into them. You're going to pour strength into them. You're going to give them a new desire and a new heart. Father. That's the business that you're in, is changing our hearts and our desires. And you're creating within us, Lord, a desire to please you. Lord, I pray strengthen that resolve today in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this victory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.